Good morning. What a privilege to worship together to the King of all things. Amen. We're going to break our usual routine. There will not be an opening this morning. Um, there will be a message. And then we will receive John and Janice into our fellowship. And I want you to understand that we rejoice in that, but we rejoice most of all that their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then after that, we will have a prayer session for Cephas and Hannah, the truck that you all helped to contribute to with food and finances and so forth is on the way. Maybe it's there. I'm not sure it will. It is there. Okay. It's out of customs, praise the Lord. And they will be going down, we'll be praying for their safety and that the Lord would multiply what is there. So I'm gonna begin this morning, we're gonna open with prayer and I'm gonna ask for your prayer requests. <clears throat> yes. Okay, Ann Brubaker, COVID. Um, I guess, uh, Gordon, I'm just gonna call on you to pray. Anyone else? Kirk? Brother Dennis. Um, is he home or is he in a hospital? We heard conflicting things. He's been a pretty sick man, Brother Dennis. Okay, yes. Thank you. Anyone else? Brother Gordon, you want to lead us in prayer?
God's people said, Amen. Amen. Welcome to everyone this morning, visitors, regulars, irregulars. What a privilege to worship together. I have two things I want to do before I get into the message. As many of you know, Mary Ellen and I both had COVID. Um, in many ways, it wasn't a whole lot different than a bad cold or, or a flu, but one aspect of it that was absolutely devastating was complete fatigue. I couldn't hardly function. I tried to work and couldn't. And many of you brought food, called and want to know if they get groceries. Some of you are farmers that called and give me verbal support. Some of you even offered to come and do my harvest. We declined that because that meant you'd have to be around me and I didn't want to give you what I had. I know that there were many prayers and I bring this up for a reason. I thank the Lord for you but I thank the Lord for the church and for the church body. Because I could not help but think, and sometimes I slept 30 hours out of 36. I was that devastated. But I could not help but think of the number of people that were laying in beds and had no one that called. No one was praying. Nobody showed up. Nobody came. And somehow the isolation of the whole thing, the devil rejoices. Boy, I tell you, I am so excited to be back this morning. One of my problems as a minister, and you all know it, I get too emotional. And I'm probably going to be worse today because I am so pleased to be here and to be with you. Second thing I want to talk about <clears throat> before we get to the message is the national upheaval that we are in. It's got fingers everywhere, doesn't it? In every way. <laughs> we could just go on and on and on about what's happening in our nation. I want you to remember, to understand that the kingdom that you and I believe in and are part of and our citizenship is in is the reason we're here today, and in that king and in that kingdom, not one single thing has changed. He is still the full authority, and that's the reason we're here. So I want to say to anyone this morning, if you're angry, depressed, wanting to fight, whatever it is because of what's going on, you got too much emphasis on the earthly kingdom. The promise is that the kingdom that you and I belong to is forever. Hallelujah. I know, I guess I do need to qualify that a little bit. We are disappointed and literally we grieve when we see people, nations, governments, families, whatever it is, and they make foolish decisions that is going to be so destructive to them. It can't help but affect us somewhat. But our joy and our peace and our anchor 
has not moved. The message this morning I've entitled, The Elephant in the Room. I suppose I need to give a definition just to that phrase. I'm not sure it's entirely an English phrase, but that's the way we know it anyway. And this, I, I, I found this definition of the elephant in the room. An obvious and enormous topic that is reluctant to be addressed because it makes people uncomfortable. You're wondering what that, what that elephant in the room this morning is. This is what it is. I have to admit, I've never preached on this. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody preach on it. Number one, persecution is coming. And it's coming on good people from the evil one. It's coming. We are seeing the beginnings of evil oppressing good people like we have never seen it in the United States. It's coming. And I think that scripturally we know this. I called it the elephant in the room because the truth of the matter is we all know what I just said is true. And the way I look at prophecy is a little bit like this. The presence of evil and the persecution of God's people is already here now. It may not be right here, but it is on, in the globe. We know that. And it's being poured out all over and it's getting worse and worse. There's going to come a time when the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven years that's going to come on this earth. And the way I would understand that, and this is a way oversimplification, forgive me for that. But the way I would understand that, the first three and a half years of that seven year period, the devil, the uh, Antichrist, is going to hide who he is. And he's going to have a peace treaty with Israel, and there's going to be peace, and there's going to be, it looks like it's pretty good. But somewhere in the middle of that, of that time of trouble, he's going to reveal who he is, and he is going to dump his fury on Israel and God's people and everything and everybody. So the evil that we see today is only a little tiny beginning of what's coming. It's going to be poured on the whole earth. This is not the usual God is love. He loves you. He's going to reach out. Please come. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I'm telling you, if we believe the word of God, we have to draw the conclusion that there is judgment coming. It is coming. And the reason that's important, I think, is because parents, grandparents, it is so important that we make our children to understand that they must be faithful when things are not nice. They have to understand that. We need to prepare them now, every day. First of all, persecution is coming from the evil one. Secondly, judgment is coming from God. We're going to talk about that. Well, wait a minute, this God's love. We'll talk about that. Because judgment is coming from God. Number three, revenge and retribution is also coming from God. Revenge and retribution. 
I guess there's a couple more definitions I want to share before we get into the word. Revenge involves the desire to see the wrongdoer suffer. Anybody ever feel like revenge if somebody does them wrong? As believers, we've got to be careful with that one. We're going to show you in a little bit. That's God's business, not ours. And retribution seeks justice. In 2 Peter 3.9, God is not, says he is not willing that any should perish. God should issue his vengeance on me because I'm a sinner. I'm a lousy, rotten dude inside. And he has every reason to dump his wrath on me. You know what he did? Remember, God isn't willing that any should perish, and he, retribution, looks for justice. So justice, because I have sinned, has to be paid for. And that's what he did at the cross. The retribution was when Jesus died with my sin on him that killed him. And justice was served, and God is now just to say that Phil or anyone else that comes to him can be saved. I love retribution because retribution rejects the the. Um, um, revenge of God. And I want to tell you something. When we reject the retribution at the cross, we open the door wide open for the revenge of God, for the vengeance of holiness on the human family. I, does this make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's coming. We're seeing it. Let's don't be blind. Things are not going to continue the way they have in the United States of America. They are not. Unless the Lord, by some wonderful plan of his that I cannot find in the word of God, chooses to have revival. And then that's, that'd be wonderful. That's his business, not mine. Well, let's turn, first of all, to Matthew 10. And I'm going to travel through some scriptures, a number of them fairly quickly. Matthew 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body. That's the devil. That's evil. But are not able to kill the soul. Hallelujah. But rather fear him. And if your Bible's like mine and the hymn is not capitalized, I'm sorry, it should be. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you know what we need to understand? If I am killed in this life for the name of Jesus, I have lost nothing. Nothing. Because I belong to another kingdom. And to take me out of this kingdom is a marvelous and wonderful thing. But many people today, 
And much of the political scene today is to get it right so we can protect people and things are not right and we're going to do this with the government, we're going to do that and we're going to keep right on killing babies and on and on and on. No. Do we understand? It's all right. Because we fear the Lord and he will take care of us. Let's go to Revelation 6. <clears throat> verse 9 and <clears throat> you'll remember that um, there's a series in Jacob's trouble in the seven year tribulation period and opens with seven seals and then seven trumpets and then seven bulls. They progressively get worse and worse. And so we're going to pick this up in the sixth chapter, the fifth seal, verse nine. And there is an interesting statement from people who have been killed by evil. It's an evil time. And they've killed them. So I want you to read with me, Revelation 6, 9, And when he'd opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Do you realize these are believers? They have paid with their life. And you know what they're asking for? They're asking for God to give revenge on them. Amazing. 11th verse. And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. This is a plea for vengeance. From God's people. And you know what Jesus answers them? Or, the, or at least God answers them in some form. He tells them. Remember he'd already told them that's his business. He said. You have been cleansed by my blood. You've shed your blood. You've been cleansed by my blood. And he puts a robe of white. Of purity. On them. And tells them to rest. It's not our place, even tribulation saints, to look for vengeance. Isn't that amazing? Well, some people may say, well, God's all love. The problem is that we define love by the human standards and not by God's standards. And so, um, Let's just go start in the Old Testament. Let's go to Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and I want to read verse, I want to, uh, chapter 32, Deuteronomy 32, beginning at verse 35. Anyone, anyone that thinks that God is all love by the human definition of love does not understand God. That's just a fact. This is the elephant in the room we don't want to talk about. 
but it's here and it is coming. Verse 35, Deuteronomy 32. To me belong vengeance and recompense, and by that word, really that recompense there is the retribution I talked about earlier. To me belong vengeance and recompense, their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants, when he seeth that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left, and he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. This is the Lord speaking. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I whet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. And that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he shall revenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. you think all the sin and all the things that are being promoted will go unpaid for? I'm telling you, we are in a dire strait right now in the United States. But the whole world really is in this same situation. And God says, there's going to come a time and I will shoot arrows, I'll wound every one of them, and they will shed their blood. Let's go to Psalm 79. I want to keep moving here. <clears throat> Psalms 79, verse 10. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants which is shed. I'll tell you every time a soul that belongs to Jesus is mocked, ridiculed, slain, injured, wounded, hurt, whatever it is, Jesus is going to avenge it. This is scary stuff. Because if you're like me, I read this. I don't really want to read this stuff because it's talking about people, even if they don't like me, I like them. I want them to do well. I want them to belong to the kingdom of God. I want them to have an eternal life with him. Let's go to Isaiah 59. Verse 17. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the clothes, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. 
according to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense. That's God. That's God. I tell you this ought to light a fire in every believer's heart. Everyone we see, this is the promise to them if they do not bow the knee and come to Jesus. Somebody's going to say, well, all this bad stuff's going to happen, and man, there's going to be, I might have to give my life, and I'm going to be put in prison, and on and on and on, and it's just not worth it. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just kind of hide a little bit, and I'll, I'll, I'll pretend like uh, <clears throat> neutral, and, and uh, maybe in the end, God's mercy will cover. No. God loves us so much that he paid for all of these things at the cross of Calvary. And if we reject that offering, there is no more offering for sin. There is no more. Let's go to Isaiah 63 while we're here. And this is an amazing thing. I thought God's heart was, he's all love. Right? I mean, human definition of love. Again, verse 3, Isaiah 63. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. He's gonna take it all, he's gonna. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked and there was none to help and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me and my fury it upheld me, and I will tread down the people in my anger, and will make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Verse 4, the day of vengeance is in my heart. That's the Lord. I'm sorry that so many times in my life when I should speak up because a soul is worth everything, and I keep my mouth shut. God help us. Let it be on fire. These are people we do business with. These are people in our family. There are people that we love. There are people that are precious to us. And the vengeance of God, unless they come to Calvary, is going to be poured out. We say we're a church. I'm not trying to be overly critical, understand. But we say we're a church. One thing a church does is it follows Jesus and it reflects the power of the gospel. God help us. Everyone. Let's go back to Psalms, the 64th Psalm. And this is... There are so many. The hard part of today's message was which verses to use and which ones not to. Once I got to looking at it, it's just staggering, and I haven't been there. Psalm 64. I'm going to read the whole psalm, only 10 verses. 
<clears throat> Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked and from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. That they may shoot in secret at the perfect, suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. They encourage themselves in an evil manner. They commune by laying snares privately. They say, who shall see them? They search out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them and in the heart is deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. So they shall make their own tongue to fall upon themselves and all that see them shall flee away. And all men shall fear and declare the work of God for they shall wisely consider his doings. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him and all the upright in heart shall glory. You know what this verse just said, that last verse? It says that the righteous will see the destruction of the wicked and be glad. That's a hard verse for me. That's very hard for me. How can they be glad? One of the reasons we're upset with the way things are today is because they aren't right. It's destructive, it's ruining families, it's ruining people, it's ruining everything around us and we see that. And there's something inside us and so what this is saying, when they finally see that God is going to, wreck, to correct it and the blessings of God is going to be poured out, the righteous rejoice. Well, how can vengeance and retribution be good? Think about what they do. It displays for everyone to see God's righteousness. It displays for everyone to see his holiness. It displays for everyone to see his justice. And it displays for everyone to see his glory. And so the righteous rejoice. I'm telling you, this study is that I've got to change some thinking, just to be real blunt. I have to trust him. He knows when and where vengeance is right. He knows when there is no more repentance. So what do we do with this loving God that died on Calvary and is going to dump all his vengeance on man for their sin? Turn with me to Romans 12. Bible scholars out there know that I'm bypassing an awful lot of things. What's our lot? How do I deal with this? Romans 12, verse 17. 
recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Notice this next verse. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. It's God's business. But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I call this little section the believer's balance. We long for the glory of God's justice and his judgment to come. We long for the time when it will be right. But in our present situation, we love sinners. I need to draw this to a close. Turn with me to Revelation 14. As we said earlier, there's the seals. It's kind of an interlude in the scripture, and then there's a trumpet, and then there's an interlude, and then finally the bowl judgments. This is between the trumpets and the bowls that we're going to read. And I, Before we ever read this, we would go back, and we're not going to take the time. You remember that there was a third of the vegetation that had been wiped out on the earth. There was a third of the life on earth that, and, and the sea, and a third of the, of the rivers. And on top of that, there had been locusts out of hell that come out. And then there were scorpions that come out, and apparently they had the ability to sting on both ends. And one of the things I read that I found really interesting was they said that there are some of the scorpions in the desert area that when they sting a man, he will literally breathe and foam at the mouth and lay on the ground in severe pain. And these scorpions are put out there for five months. And men are in unbelievable pain. And someone's going to say, where's the love of God in that? Why don't you just kill them? And the amazing thing about these people when they're stung, you know what they do? They don't repent. It's amazing. They do not repent. Their pain is so bad for month after month. Their pain is so bad and they are in such misery 
that they want the rock to fill them. They'd rather commit suicide and go to hell. They think it'd be better. It wouldn't, but they think so. And I don't know why. I guess God won't let them. They can't even commit suicide. Doesn't even make sense. Here they are, in, in all this pain, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all the judgment of God, somebody's going to say, where is God's love? So let's read Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. I had never, ever soaked into me. I've read this many times, what it said. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. Remember, there had already been 144,000 uh, evangelists on the earth. This is after that. Fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. The midst of heaven there, uh, some of the commentators say, if you understand the, the, the Greek here, it is saying that this is in the fullness of the day. It's at noonday. It's when the, when the sun is the brightest so that... And the whole earth can see this angel. And they can see him and hear him clearly. And this is the midst of all this pain. And all the vengeance of God that's being poured out. Notice what this angel says. Where's God's love? Verse 7. And the angel saying with a loud voice, fear God. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that it made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of waters. Give glory to him and worship him. Wow. You mean, you mean when all this terrible, undescribable stuff is going on, God sends a final effort, an angel in the heavens, and he says, the everlasting gospel. What is that? That's exactly what you have in your hands right here. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him crucified. And he says the everlasting gospel. And he reaches out and he says in the midst of all the pain and the suffering and the anger and the cursing and everything else that's going on. All the immoralities and sorceries and on and on and on. And he says, worship the Lord. Come on. Come to me. The love of God, right in the midst of the vengeance. I'd like to ask you a question this morning. Could anything be more foolish than for someone in that state? And the Lord laid out the everlasting gospel with a special angel and said, no. possible that today, November 22, 2020, that that everlasting gospel is presented and it comes in a golden platter. It's easy. It's in freedom. It's offered to every man. There are no penalties to pay. I am not in any great pain because of the Lord. He says, just come. that call I'm asking you 
fool. It's time to shut this down. I have one more thing. Thanksgiving's coming, right? And I assume that many of you and your families will get together and you'll have an absolutely fantastic, scrumptious meal. You'll be with your immediate family. It'll be wonderful. Parents, moms, dads, grandparents, great-grandparents, whoever you are. Do not miss the opportunity. While there is complete freedom and openness, and I don't care if they've heard it 100,000 times, tell them 100,001, tell the children, tell the family why you are thankful. If all it is is eating another turkey, sandwich, well, so what? Tell them that the everlasting gospel that was on Calvary is the reason I belong to another kingdom and my life is forever and I am forever grateful and thankful to the Lord who bought me. Hallelujah. Don't miss the opportunity. Do we have a hymn? Welcome to worship this morning. I was uh, agreeing with Bill as he was mentioning this morning the fact that uh, gathering together takes on a little different meaning these days than it probably did for me at the beginning of this year. I think we just take it a little more um, seriously. We appreciate it maybe in a different way uh, when it seems to be taken away from us or there are, are restrictions. So, um, I guess I would probably say with a little more sincerity this morning than I would have a year ago, it's good to see your face. I wanted to open up this morning with a couple of thoughts out of Acts chapter 7 and then chapter 3 with a thought around the idea or the, the uh, comparison and contrast of the inner man versus the outer man. And very simplistically, um, I'm just defining the inner man as, as our heart or, or our mind or our, our personality, There's the thoughts, the emotions, the things that we feel, just that the inner man. And, and the outer man just simply being the things that we get to see in others or, or that others hear from us, the, the words, the, the actions, the things that, that we do, the things that we handle or touch or where do we go with, with our feet, those actions. And I want us to think about those contrasts as we go through um, a couple, couple verses this morning. I wanted to look at Stephen in, in chapter 7, but I guess I really should start behind that. Uh, in chapter 6 of Acts, um, 
beginning at verse 8. And it says this, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And then, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And then they suburned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us and all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw that his face as it had been the face of an angel. And, I, and I'll stop there before we go into to chapter 7. But what we, we see right off here is, is the difference between the inner man or the outer man of either Stephen or the religious leaders. See, Stephen came not with his own wisdom or abilities. It says here that they were not able to resist in verse 10 the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. He didn't come with the, the customs or the traditions that they did or the history that they did. Um, he came in a different spirit, and it was hard for them to resist that. His inner man was different. It was changed. They'd ha he'd had an internal transformation already. And we get to see what their reaction was. That The outer man was they got pretty angry with him. Uh, in fact, they... They basically conspired against him, which was no surprise, I guess. And we see that as we continue on. But there's a difference between the two. And I guess I want us to see that, a need for that internal transformation. And it's not a one-time, I'm not talking necessarily about salvation. I'm talking about a need for a change of outlook from each and every day of our lives. And we carry on, and, and they start off verse seven, uh, chapter 7. It says, then, the high priest, then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The Lord God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. And I'm not going to read, but he basically goes through a long history. But he says, I want you to listen to me. He, he's appealing to the inner man. He wants them to realize their past of who they are, but not just follow those blindly. And I'll pick up at the end because I, I, I would guess this went on for quite a while as he reiterated their history that they know the, among themselves. And we'll read just a couple verses, verses 48 through 50. It says, How be it that the Most High dwelleth not in the temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things. Um, and I guess I should, should have read verse 47. It says, But Solomon built him in house. And what he was getting out is, again, what I'm trying to communicate is this need for an internal or an inner man transformation. There has to be something that's built again. And it ends that says, he says in verse 50, Hath not my hand made all these things? And I think about that because God has formed our bodies, but I think more importantly our heart or our mind, the place that he dwells internally. So do we have that inner transformation? Do we come to a, to a place like this that is built with hands 
desiring to see God speak to us and to change our hearts and our minds. I always find this passage a little fascinating because here's Stephen giving a long explanation of their history. And he kind of got away with it in a sense. And between verse 50 and verse 51, he lost the crowd. Well, I don't think he lost the crowd. They turned on him as soon as he started speaking directly to them because what he was calling out in them was a direct call for them to change who they were internally because he called them out. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, and so do ye. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they, and they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now with betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. He, he was attacking them, and, and they reacted. He was calling their inner man to change, and they said no. And, and their desire was simply to, to kill him. And you see that in the very next verse. And they heard these things, and they were cut to the heart, but they didn't listen to that. They simply gnashed on him with their teeth. And so we see this contrast between the inner man that is guided by the Holy Spirit and the results of it in Stephen, and then the inner man that's not guided by that and the results in these religious leaders. And that's very clearly seen in the next verse, 55. But he, being Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And I wish every time I faced trouble or frustration that I could, I could pause long enough to see the hand of God or the face of God looking on the situation. Uh, I think sometimes that takes too many minutes, hours, days, or weeks for me to actually see that. But Stephen saw that in the moment. He was able to see the, the presence of God. And in the last verse of this uh, passage in chapter 7 verse 60 and it ends he simply said he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice and this is Stephen Lord lay not this sin to their charge and when he had said this he fell asleep and so what is it that I look for in trouble do I look for the way out do I look for my own good or do I look for what God is doing in it I want to read a couple verses in chapter 3 of Acts if you turn back there with the idea of what do we expect God to do in face of trouble. And it starts off in chapter 3 and it says this, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple, the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which was called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And they gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which had sat at alms in the, at, the gate, at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. What do we expect God to do? I don't know. Maybe I can use my imagination here for a minute. But I'm assuming that the man, he'd obviously been lame or unable to walk his entire life, 
had probably thought about some ways to improve his circumstances. And, you know, I don't know, maybe there were other beggars, and, and maybe this is stretching it a bit, but uh, maybe he had prayed and asked God, can I have an ability to maybe uh, say a few words or, or play an instrument or, or uh, uh, do some sort of an amusement to get more alms, to, to better himself? I don't know if that ever crossed his mind or not. And I don't know what his expectations were of, of, of God in this circumstance. And maybe it seems like he was actually pretty congenial. Maybe he was pretty content where he was at. Maybe he didn't really have a desire to change his circumstances. But he did expect to receive some things. And when Peter and John came along, he, he did reach out and was eager to receive a gift from them um, to sustain his life, I would have assumed. But I thought about that, and I wondered, do I expect the wrong things? Or do I get disappointed when maybe God answers in a way that wasn't what I expected or intended? Obviously, this was a, a major transformation of his internal ankle bones and, and joints, it says. But was he expecting that? And I'm guessing no, not at all. And so I wonder, you know, are my prayers, you know, do... Sometimes I think specific is good, but maybe it shouldn't be so specific because I may be looking for something that God says, no, you need something entirely different. I want to heal this and totally change this circumstance or the situation in your life, and you're just wanting to put a little Band-Aid on the circumstances. So what are our expectations? And so I think about this morning as we come to a worship service, as we gather together, you know, are we here just to hear some words and, and maybe be uplifted by a, a song or two that touches our hearts? Is it something that is, is just to put a Band-Aid on our Sunday? Or are we looking for something that can transform our lives? What kind of expectation do we have in our hearts this morning? And I hope it's for something more than an alm. I hope it's for some, some form of a transformation of our heart or our mind or a process or a thought and looking for an answer to prayer, looking for a response, expecting God to answer in some way. We will now go to prayer, and we'll open that up for prayer requests. Um, obviously, we, our hearts are with uh, Shirley and, and Gail this morning and their family.
It is our clear expectation today as we come here and gather together that we come with the presence of the Holy Spirit who is the manifestation of Jesus the Christ. <clears throat> Sometimes as we meditate for a period of time ahead of a sermon, the Lord very quickly pours out a sermon into our lap. And sometimes it's a matter of weeks. The weeks that went by considering this time, I've been meditating. And just like your meditations, it includes lots of things. It includes the word of God, but it also includes things that we experience and things that we hear and things that we're aware of. And so it's fascinating to me as the Holy Spirit <clears throat> brings us to a, a passage of Scripture. If you want to turn to Psalms chapter 18, we're going to be looking into that chapter a little bit. Psalms chapter 18 and the first few verses here. I began to meditate on this, and I continued to ask the Lord, uh, what is this? Lord, <clears throat> what am I supposed to do with this? Sometimes it's not always obvious. And yet when you walk in here this morning, Brother Bill opens up the Sunday school time speaking of things that are perhaps foreboding. And reading a passage that is talking about being or expecting and looking for the deliverer in Psalms chapter 33 that he was reading to us. And Brother Zach, as he opened up and reading an Acts there, and it's talking about Stephen and the description of him speaking, being full of the Holy Ghost and facing those that he knew, and they did, kill him. And yet he was full of the Holy Ghost, and so he could stand there. He could stand there on the rock of his Lord. He could stand there in the fortress of God, and he could know that his deliverer would deliver him. We thank the Lord Jesus by his Holy Spirit to bring those thoughts, to bring this message before you. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting to me to always read, sometimes there's little statements ahead of a psalm to give it a context. In this particular context, it says in my Bible, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, and this is what he said, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. Right away, we have to stop there for just a moment. Was David speaking of his own personal strength? Not at all. He's speaking of the Lord. He's speaking of the Lord's, the Lord God's strength. And he's acknowledging to the Lord God <clears throat> that it is you are the strength that I claim. What an attitude, what, a, what an awareness of God's power and God's strength in his life. But he, speak, he speaks, he talks, and as he begins this 
psalm by saying, I will love thee. And in several other versions that we looked into, it simply says, I love thee, I love you. That was the expression of David at the time when, when he was delivered from the hand of Saul. He turned to God and said, Lord, I love you. And this is a, a kind of a word, a kind of a statement of deep devotion, of deep love, of deep humility in the presence of God, but just a fervency of love for God, for the deliverance that he had given from the hand of Saul. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. And then as the next few phrases go on here, that kind of expands on those word pictures. But he's presenting a, a picture here of who God is. That the Lord, the one that he loves, the one that gives him all the strength, who has all power, he is the rock. He is my rock, and, and David claims that is his rock, but it is describing the rock that is God himself. He says, you are my fortress, you are my deliverer. The rock, a picture of something that is stable, something that is powerful, that is strong, that is unmovable, that you can build a foundation on. You know, recently, <clears throat> I was involved with uh, digging rocks out of the, my field. And uh, we found lots of interesting rocks, normal kinds of rocks, but then I came across one that I couldn't believe how deep this thing went. And it was the biggest rock that I'd ever seen on the farm. And I thought this was really an amazing thing. We eventually did get it out with some help of a neighbor and so forth and pushed it across the field because I couldn't pick it up. Now, this is a mighty rock. But then you think about the Rocky Mountains. And you think about God is the rock. That, that was, that's a big rock, and it was amazing, but God is the rock that you can build your life on, that we can build our universe on, that we can build the kingdom of heaven on. And he is everything that we need. And he is our fortress. And you think about, what is a fortress? And we don't really think of fortresses so much in our, in our world today, but you, you have to think about the military uh, strategies and technology that David was writing under. And a fortress was a very important thing. A fortress was a place, a plate like a village. It was a city that was built inside of a fortified area, fortified walls and gates and so forth. And they probably, uh, in, in, a for, in a fortress, they were able to go in and out. Maybe they even had farming activities outside of that. But when the threat came, they could close themselves in and they were gated and they were walled, maybe double walled. It was a mighty place of protection. And David's looking to God and said, you are my rock and you are my fortress. I can live in you. I can dwell in you. And I have all protection. I can go to you and be there on a fortress that's built on the rock. And then he also declares that God is his deliverer. So not only do you have the stability and the strength and the foundation of a rock to be inside of a fortress that's built upon that, but you have the deliverer, the one who could come and win that battle because the battle was the Lord's. He was going to say later on here. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and he goes on and he describes acknowledging God again, my God. And you think about that. Can we own God? Can we claim God as our God, my God? No, not at all. It's not what he's saying. He's simply 
He's saying, Lord, you are, you are my God because you have chosen me. You have pulled me into your kingdom, and I'm going to claim uh, your ownership to mine, just like a son would claim my father. The father had, had brought him into the world, and yet the son could turn back to the father and say, my father. And so the, David also turns to God and says, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. He can put all of his trust, all of his refuge, everything can be taken back to God. He describes it as my buckler, and that's a, a strange word to us. It simply means a shield. It's referring to a small shield used in battle, used in close combat, maybe 18, 20 some inches in diameter. It had an iron ball uh, thing they called the boss in the front of it. It was used in, in very close battle with a sword. It says, even in the, you know, when I get into the closest situation, you are my shield for everything that I need. It says, you are the horn of my salvation. You think of the, the blast of the, of the ram's horns that would pierce through the din of a, of a battle or, or the calamities of life, and it's the horn of the salvation of the deliverer that's coming. And he says that you are my high tower. And the high tower in the technology of the thinking of, of David's mind and the metaphor that he's coming up with a high tower is different than a fortress because a fortress is a city or place where people live but a high tower is a very tight place of security it's not something you only go to in the worst of times and it's a place of defense and preservation I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised so shall I be saved from my enemies these were the words, first words that came from David on the day that he was delivered from all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes. Let's go back and let's review just a little bit of what he's referring to here to put it into context so we understand what it was that David, before he actually became the king, the experiences that he went through that would have caused this call this, these statements coming out of his heart. If you go back into 1 Samuel, and I'm not going to read these passages, I want to review this with you a little bit, but it really helps to understand what's going on in David's heart there. <clears throat> and you go back into chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, and it, the rest of the chapters run down through chapter 31, and we're not going to even review all of those, but here you have these, all these experiences that David had before he became the king, because he doesn't become the king until 2 Samuel, in the first few chapters there, he's actually anointed or officially made the king. But before that, there was a lot of experiences of the, being subject to the hand of Saul. Saul was the king. He had been anointed as the, as the king over Israel. <clears throat> in chapter 13, we find a situation or an incident where King Saul conducts sacrifice without the prophet Samuel. And a condemnation comes through Samuel from God <clears throat> that uh, his kingdom is not going to continue, that God is seeking another man after God's own heart to replace King Saul. Chapter 14, Jonathan, the son of Saul, shows the same kind of reliance upon God that, that David has when he attacks with his uh, armor bearer, the Philistine garrison. He expressed some things at that moment so similar to David because they were both in the presence of God. They said, God can deliver us with a few or with many. It doesn't matter to him. And so let's 
<clears throat> let's just go and see what the Lord will do. And Jonathan took that garrison and, and attacked them. In chapter 15, King Saul uh, chooses to not annihilate the Amalekites, and he keeps King Agag and all the, the spoils. And Samuel declares from God that Saul has rejected the word of the Lord, and he rejects him. The Lord rejects him as the king. He'd been anointed as the king, but he's being told, the Lord is rejecting you from being the king because you rejected the word of the Lord. Chapter 16, Samuel anoints David to be the king from among his brothers. And this says that the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And also says that the spirit of the Lord left Saul. King Saul is still the king. David has been anointed to be the king, but he's not the king. And the spirit of God, what we call the Holy Spirit, left King Saul at that moment. <clears throat> chapter 17, the, the, the chapter that deals with David and Goliath. And David uh, says to King Saul, giving some uh, history to him, he said, The Lord delivered me out of the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. That was, king, that was David before he became king. That was his, his understanding, his attitude. He said, look what the Lord did. He delivered me. He allowed me to kill with my, his own hands a bear and a lion. And the Lord delivered him out of that situation. Almost impossible, really impossible. And yet he knew that the Lord would do that. And he would trust him and he put his life in the hands of the Lord. And so he also knew that the Lord was going to deliver him from the hand of this Philistine. And he says to Goliath directly, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom thou hast defied. He didn't come to him. He didn't walk out there to Goliath and said, hey, Goliath, I'm going to get you. I'm going to take you down today. No, he, he did it in the presence of the Lord and said, you have defied the Lord of the, of the host of Israel, and I come to you in his name. This day will the Lord deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. The Lord doesn't say with sword or spear, he continued to tell Goliath, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. David went confidently, declaring, because he was standing on the rock which is his Lord, he was standing in the fortress of the Lord, and he was looking for and expecting, knowing that the Lord would deliver Goliath because he had defied the Lord of hosts. Chapter 18, Jonathan's love for David is very visible there. Uh, Saul, King Saul's daughter, Michal, is given to David to wed, and then King Saul's jealousy turns to anger, turns to fear, becomes an enemy, and twice throws a javelin at David, trying to kill him. Chapter 19, he's fleeing King Saul's plans to kill him. He, lives with, he goes and lives with the prophet Samuel, who had many prophets with him there. And during this chapter 19, three sets of men from King Saul go to the prophet Samuel's house to take or arrest and to kill David. And those three sets of men, each, as they came into that place, began to prophesy with the rest of the prophets. King Saul himself even went there to Samuel's house to capture and kill David. And King Saul began to prophesy 
with the prophets. Chapter 20, Jonathan and David's covenant of kindness for generations to come, and then David leaves the area. He goes on, chapter 21, he arrives at Nob. There's a priest there called Ahimelech, and Ahimelech gives him bread, and he gives him Goliath's sword. David didn't have any weapons with him, but he now is carrying Goliath's sword. David pretends to be crazy before Achish, the king of Gath, one of the Philistine kings. Chapter 22, David hides in a cave called Adullam, and there his parents came to him, and his brothers came to him, and 400 men came to him in that cave of Adullam. And it describes the 400 as everyone that was distressed, everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented. And they all gathered together in that cave. David sent his parents off to Moab to protect them because he wasn't sure, he said, until, the, until he would know what God will do for me. So you can't say that David always knew what was going to happen. And we can read these things and, and you can say, well, that, that's just amazing what God did. And, and this is a, an amazing account. But here's David admitting <clears throat> that he was fleeing for his life. He didn't know what was going to happen. He had, a, he had the king of Israel after him to kill him. And he didn't know. He sent his parents off to protect them. <clears throat> In that same chapter 22, King Saul hears about the priest Ahimelech. And he goes to that village, and he kills all 85 priests in that village. All their families, all of their possessions, burnt their city. And one priest, Abiathar, escapes and reports it to David. And he becomes one of the men with David. <clears throat> that had to be an awful message to receive. Because David had went there by himself, asking for something to eat. And if he had any weapons, and the priest gave him some bread and handed him Goliath's sword and sent him on his way. And because of what David had done, 85 people and all their families were destroyed. <clears throat> he also knew he had been anointed. He had been anointed to be the king someday. I can't imagine the the sense of responsibility and the sense of, <clears throat> of hurt that he was experiencing for all those people. And it was all because of, of an action that he had taken. He was bearing that with him. He didn't always know what was going to happen. It wasn't always an easy path that he was going down. He didn't know from day to day if he would even live. And yet the Lord had anointed him to be the king. Chapter 23, David and his now 600 men deliver the town of the fortress of Keilah from the Philistines. <clears throat> it describes there in that chapter that they're hiding wherever they can, and they're, look, they're hiding from Saul's daily pursuits after them. The Lord delivers David from the daily threat of death and the Philistine invasion as, as Saul is closing in on them in one particular place. A message comes that the uh, Philistines have invaded, and so they break off the pursuit of David. <clears throat> and David takes his 600 men, and they go and hide in the caves of Engedi, near the shores of the Dead Sea. Chapter 24 is the incident in the cave of Engedi. And some of you that have been to Israel, you know you've been to Engedi. You, under, you can picture what's going on there and, and what that looks like. <clears throat> 
These 600 men were hiding <clears throat> in these caves, and King Saul himself comes in. And they had an opportunity to kill him directly, and they wanted to. And David persuaded them <clears throat> to not touch him because he was the Lord's anointed. David goes over, and I don't know how this happened for sure, but you have the Spirit of God working here. But he went over and he took off, he cut off a piece of King Saul's clothing and gets back into the cave. And King Saul leaves the cave, and when he's outside, King David walks out, or David, before he became the king, walks out and holds up the piece of cloth and calls out to King Saul. And in their exchange, King Saul's heart begins to soften. He realizes that David had the, every opportunity to kill him. But David makes it known that he would not touch the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> Chapter 24. Chapter 25, I mean, the incident with Nabal and Abigail. And then chapter 26, the incident where David and Abishai chose not to kill the anointed once again. They went into the camp of King Saul in a trench. And King Saul was laying there. And all of his men were laying. They were all sound asleep. And he had every opportunity to kill King Saul. And Abishai wanted to very badly. And David... <coughs> Told him he could not do that. He could not touch the Lord's anointed. They took the spear of Saul and the cruise of water beside him. <clears throat> and at daybreak, they make themselves known. And they show the spear and they show the cruise of water to the king. He said, once again, the Lord, he had every opportunity to kill him. And he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. And Saul's heart continues to soften. He admits and blesses David to do great things and he will prevail, and, and, they, and they go their way. Chapter 27, King Saul stops the pursuit of David. Now there's some other chapters there as we finish 1 Samuel. King Saul and three sons are killed in battle, and you end up uh, then turning into 2 Samuel, and David is made the official king. So that's the context. When David was writing these words, knowing that God had completely delivered him from, from Saul, said, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. My, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. What a picture of his love. And he goes on. This is a rather long psalm in reality. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But he goes on. <clears throat> And talks about in verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and I cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple. My cry came before him even into his ears. David had experienced it so precisely that the Lord God himself hears our cries. He hears when we're calling out to him. He hears when we're desperate. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know what's ahead. There are several places in, the, in uh, I think it's chapter 13 and 14, where there's a uh, time when, G, when David specifically prays to God and is asking for direction. What am I supposed to do? What's going to happen here? But David had that every day. He didn't know what was going to happen. It was just like us. But he's telling us here that in those times when you have no idea what's ahead and what's going to happen, you can call out to the Lord and he's going to hear you. He's going to hear you from his temple. 
and he's going to answer <clears throat> because it goes directly to his heart. He describes here in many verses what the effect of, of God reacting uh, in the earth is. And it says in verse 16, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of a situation. And maybe we're being prepared for those kinds of situations where we have a strong enemy. We have someone who is coming after us, who is confronting us, either physically or in speech, in a confrontation of some kind. But we can have that mind of, that was in David to know that God is my rock. I live in the fortress that's built on that rock. He is my deliverer. And whether I'm delivered in life or by death, it doesn't matter. We are delivered. Because we believe there is an eternal kingdom. And there's a, we have an eternal hope. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> he says also here, making references many times that the Lord delivered me. He delivered me from the strong enemy, from those that hated me. They were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, verse 18. But the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also in the large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Now, look at verse 20 here. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. Now, don't close your Bible right there. We talked about this in Sunday school just a little bit about your righteousness. And it sounds like here that he's just saying, well, the Lord did all these things for me because I was so righteous and I had such clean hands. Don't read verse 20 without reading the rest of it, and especially verse 24. We'll come down to that in just a moment. <clears throat> for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. He's, he's justifying himself, isn't he? For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes for me. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. Isn't that where we are today? That we are righteous only because of Jesus Christ and what, how he views us through salvation, through the work, finished work of Christ upon the cross for us and his resurrection. That's the only way that God can look at us as righteous. And David also understood it that way. It wasn't because he was so powerful or so strong in his own abilities, he was so scheming and all those things. He was living day by day Lord, show me the next step. I don't know what's going to happen here. Deliver me, if you will. <clears throat> and what, it goes on here for a, a lot of verses and so forth. I'll go, skip down to verse 46. The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God that avengeth me, and subdueth the people under me. He delivereth me from mine enemies, Yea, thou liftest me up above those that rise up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore will I give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and sing praises unto thy name. Great deliverance giveth he to his king, and showeth mercy to his anointed, to David, and to his seed forevermore. <clears throat> so that chapter, Psalms 18, ending 
repeated references to being delivered by God, <coughs> who is our deliverer. You know what's interesting here? <clears throat> the Hebrew word for deliverer. Anybody know what that is? Okay. Here is one way of spelling it, not using the Hebrew letters, but it would look like this. And there's a bunch of little pronunciation guides that go with that. But if you spell it on out in English, it simply says this. And what is that? Yeshua. What is Yeshua? It's Jesus. When you go to the Greek, you take the Hebrew, and you go to the Greek, it's Jesus. And all these things, these references to the deliverer, he's my rock, he's my fortress, he's my deliverer. It also is a reference to God, who is Jesus, as we see him in the New Testament. He is our deliverer. Sometimes we think that the Old Testament doesn't apply. But I think we can go and we can dwell in those scenes and because these were people who were trusting God and asking God for his presence. And he showed himself as the rock and the fortress and the deliverer. And today, we know that. We look back to when Jesus was on the earth and he died and rose again for us. And he left for us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth. And that's the way that we talk about, we sense the Spirit of God. But he even said to us that in the early times there when, when David was anointed, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's the same Spirit of God that we have today. That we can count on, that we can put our hope in, that we can put our refuge and our trust in. Because he has promised to be our rock and our fortress and our deliverer. Let me refer to a couple of verses here in the New Testament to help us see the work of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Luke chapter 12, just briefly. Luke chapter 12. And we'll pick it up in verse 4. Jesus is speaking. Speaking of a time when things will not be easy. And there could be persecution. And there could be challenges and confrontations. Luke 12, 4. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And we know that is God himself. We have nothing to fear. There is no man to fear that could do anything to you. But only God is the one to have a righteous fear because he has power of judgment over us. And, and he goes on and talks about in verses 6 and 7 how valuable we are to God. <clears throat> in verse 8, And also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. 
But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. What kind of a circumstance would that be? Where we are confronted by people in the life experience where we are demanded that we would deny God. That could happen. And we are challenged here. We are <clears throat> given power to be people who will confess the Lord before the people that we come up against. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you into the synagogues and into the magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost will teach you in that same hour what ye ought to say. <clears throat> there may come a day when we are confronted, we are arrested, we are placed into the, into the seat of power and demands are being placed upon us to submit to something that would violate God. And he says, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you in that moment because you're standing on the rock, you're in the fortress, he is your deliverer, and he will teach you exactly what you need to say at that time. Whether you live or die, you've been delivered. <clears throat> also, over in, uh, you don't need to turn there, but in, over in John 14 and John 16, Jesus is describing the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, that he's leaving for us. When he left this world, he called him the Comforter as well. He's explained several things about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things. That's a promise directly from God. Directly from the one we call the Deliverer. That the Spirit that I have left you, that indwells inside of you, is able to teach you all things. And the Holy Spirit will bring all things to your remembrance. And it says in John 16, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. And the Holy Spirit will also show you things to come. I really believe that those that need to know will understand prophetic things. And that when they find themselves in the middle of the fulfillment of prophetic events that are all throughout the New Testament, looking to the time when Jesus comes again, the Holy Spirit is going to show us to help us understand the time that we're in. The Holy Spirit has promised it. In verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, it says the Holy Spirit teaches us comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now that is God's discerning spirit. For us to be able to understand the events, the pressures of life that we may find ourselves in, and to understand it on a spiritual level. Because it's really hard in the face of the pressures that are confronting us or, or blowing up in our faces to ignore what's going on. But he's promised to give us the Holy Spirit to help us understand life on a spiritual level in the kingdom of heaven thinking. To be able to discern past the events that are visible in front of us. And finally, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. What a promise that is. 
Anyone that is led <coughs> of our lives are seated in the rock in the fortress, looking under the deliverer. We are led by the Spirit of God. It is a promise that we are the sons and daughters of God. Just like David, depending on, on the Lord for his deliverance, not knowing day to day. Very confused, very pressured, very discouraged at times. And that's how we find ourselves. And yet we can be there trusting the Lord because he is able, he has told us that he will deliver us. And we can trust him in that. Let's have a song.